Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word once again to 1 Peter. We come to the last, the last words of 1 Peter this morning as we will be looking at chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. It's easy when you come to the end of the, of the letter to kind of just, you know, think, okay, well, you know, there's some, you know, some instructions and, you know, some people who will be named, and sometimes it's easy to just pass over uh, these last words. But these last words, as Peter has written them, are amazingly beautiful. They are subtle and yet powerful, and they do a wonderful job of summing up everything that he has been attempting to tell them throughout the entire letter. In fact, within this passage, he refers to everything that he has said. He refers to it as, this is the true grace of God. And so let us read these last words this morning and let's Give our reverent attention to what God will have to say to us through them. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To, be, uh, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are words that you communicated to your people long ago, that you continue to communicate to all who will listen and who will trust and so we pray this morning as we come before these words that in our faith and in the imagination of our faith we might hear you speaking because these are living and active words that you have given to us in order that our love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. And so help us, Lord, to receive these words so that we may approve what is excellent and so pursue pureness and purity and blamelessness for the day of Christ. And fill us through these words with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ, that all of this may be to the glory and praise of you, our Heavenly Father. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is the true grace of God. This is a beautiful explanation and exploration. This entire letter 
into a word, into a concept, into a reality that we throw around so easily. Grace. Grace. It's a word I hope that graces your lips often. I hope it is, it is a reality that has gripped your heart. But what is this grace? What is this true grace that, that God has given us in Jesus Christ? That's what the entire letter has been unfolding for us. Now think about that for a moment because he hasn't said, here are the portions of letter that are grace in order that these other portions are for your instruction and obedience. What he has said here is that in the, in the text, literally, he says, I have written exhorting and declaring. If you recall from months ago when we began this study, I said to you that one of the patterns that the scripture uses to communicate Christ to us is often referred to as the indicative and the imperative. It is a pattern in which God tells us, here's who I am, here's what I have done for you, here's who you are, and then the imperatives. So in light of who you are, here is how you are now to live. What Peter is telling us, all right, indicatives, imperatives, or in Peter's words, declarations and exhortations, that the two together provide us the true grace of God. So often it's easy for us to think of grace more in terms of my salvation or my justification, that we think of grace in terms of forgiveness. But that when we start talking about obedience, when we start thinking about devotion, when we start thinking about how do I take up my cross and follow Christ, we tend to think of that more in terms of works. What Peter is wanting us to do is hold these two things together as grace. Within these closing words then, he is bringing to summary a way that is supposed to shape our perspective of everything that he has said up to this point. And what has he said? Well, our theme running throughout the letter has been that we are elect exiles who are called to embrace and to embody the hope of Jesus Christ in a hostile world. That has been our theme that we are elect exiles, that we are called to embrace the indicatives and to embody the imperatives, the hope of Jesus Christ in a hostile world. Does that last part of the summary in a hostile world, does that mean anything new to you this week? I know that not everyone has enjoyed going through all of this. I know that not everyone has enjoyed the pace. But beloved, I have been convinced since the spring 
that what has happened this week was coming. I have been convinced that things were going to get more difficult for us. And so I have attempted to allow Peter to encourage you, to exhort you in the same fashion that he encouraged and exhorted the people of God a couple thousand years ago who themselves found that they were trying to be the people of God in a world that was hostile to their faith, in a world that was hostile to their king. And what does Peter give to his people? He gives them a pattern of doxology and devotion. With devotion leading to more doxology. And with doxology leading to more devotion. With devotion leading to doxology. That there is a pattern within this letter in which everything that is being said to you as those who are in Christ Jesus is set within this pattern of because of who you are, the totality of your life is an expression of the glory of God. Think about that. Everything about who you are in Jesus Christ is for and two, the display of God's glory, both forevermore in the eternal places and even in the right now in this life. For a people who are feeling pressure, for a people who are being persecuted, and as we have said throughout this, this is not yet even state-sponsored persecution. This is not the bad part that will come. But it's still bad enough. And within the persecution that they are receiving, there is a temptation, as we have said, to either want to fight or to bury your head in the sand. And the, what God gives us in this letter is an invitation to this. There is a reason, many of you know this, that when the doxology is sung within the church, regardless of denomination, regardless of branch, whether it's Protestantism, Catholicism, or Eastern Orthodoxy, that there is a, a general posture that is recognized throughout the church, throughout the history of the church, that when people sing the doxology, they do this. And because it is a body posture that in self embodies what doxology is. Doxology is looking to God. And it is receiving from God, actively, purposefully, receiving from Him all the blessings with which He has already blessed us in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. And it is from a posture of receiving from God and looking to God that is not a form of escape from the hostility or escape from the challenge, but it is the means by which we engage the challenge and the hostility. 
We engage as those looking to Christ, being filled by Christ. This is what it means for us to be elect exiles called to embrace and to embody the hope of Christ within this world. Doxology leading to devotion. Devotion leading to further doxology. We go from here to serving here to going here to serving here. And it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the reality that I want you to know especially after the events of this week. That what has taken place this week and the things that are going to continue to take place as a result of this week, these things do not determine who you are and they do not determine how we live. Our lives are not lived in response to the political machinations that take place within this country. We have a greater common experience, and that is the experience of doxology in Christ. Peter was encouraging them. Peter is encouraging you. And so within this doxological, devotional life, he closes here with two big things. First of all, a doxological life, a devoted life that is being lived out because of God's glory, for God's glory, to God's glory, is a life that is lived very specifically and consciously in the knowledge of God's dominion and God's grace. Let me put it another way. The God of all dominion is the God of all grace. That's how he closes. Dominion here speaks of this idea of might, strength, It speaks of power. It can be used as an individual to speak about that that individual's possession of a force that is so strong that it affords him or her supremacy or control. It can also be used in reference uh, to a country or to a nation. It can can be used in reference to a government. It It is certainly used in reference to God. And what we are told is that within all the different levels of power and strength that exist within this world, there is one power that exists over this world that all the powers of this world have to answer to. And that is God in Christ through His Spirit being the one that possesses all force and ability to determine what happens and to not be thrown off by what happens. This is who God is. And we are called here to embrace that very specifically and intentionally. Embrace the God of all power. Embrace the God of all dominion. Why? Well, because Peter tells us 
He is writing from Babylon. Now, I went into great depth about this in the supplemental studies that are available in talking about this. But at the time in which Peter is writing, which is the early 60s AD, Babylon, in terms of the physical city of Babylon, right, the physical city um, that the people of God were taken you know, into exile into uh, in the Old Testament, that city is basically a ghost town at this point in history. There's not a whole lot there. It's not a lot, not a lot going on. But from the book of Revelation, what we know is that Babylon was code, uh, a code term for the early church to express the centrality of the kingdom that is set up against the kingdom of God. And that when you read through the book of Revelation, what you will find is that Babylon is mentioned multiple times. And toward the end of Revelation, as it gets even more specific, Babylon, we are told there, for example, in chapter 17, that Babylon is representative of the kingdom of Satan that is arrayed against the kingdom of God. And that all the kingdoms of this world that are participating in that kingdom of Satan, that all of them are Babylon. Now, for Peter, at the time in which he's writing here in the early 60s, uh, we know from church history he's actually writing from Rome. But why would he say, if he's writing from Rome, I'm writing from Babylon? Because it is this apocalyptic code term that was meant to help the people understand the hostility of what it meant to be missionaries living in the midst of a foreign kingdom that was arrayed against their own. And how to live as elect exiles within that hostility. You and I, beloved, we don't live in Rome. But you and I still live in the midst of a fallen world where there are fallen kingdoms that where the, the, the um, dark forces that are at work behind this, as we have talked about in 1 Peter, that these realities are real and they are at work and we live within that. But we do so not as victims, we do so as representatives of the greater country. And we do so as those who are representatives of the greater king. And the calling that we get to have is that we get to embody the realities of the heavenly places while we are here in the midst of a counterfeit kingdom. He is writing from Babylon so that we might understand that even Peter, as he writes this, is writing from that central location of persecution that the early church was experiencing. And he does so to help set the pattern for how we embrace this letter and how we embrace what this letter says to us about who we are and the times in which we live and how we are to live within those times. And he tells us that he writes not only from Babylon, but he writes through his servant, Silvanus. Now, for those who uh, don't know, Silvanus is also the same person that is identified in the New Testament as Silas. 
Silas is uh, mentioned quite a bit in the book of Acts. We know that he was a distinguished teacher of the apostolic church. We know that he was a Hellenized Jew and a Roman citizen. What this means is that he was very smart. He was very well educated. He was a theologian, but he was also a rhetorician. He was someone that had studied. He was someone that knew. He was someone that could communicate. And as a result, by the way, in the, when the, the church uh, got together at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, when the church made their first rendering of here's the truth and here's how to live, Silas or Silvanus was the one picked in order to take that to the churches. And his job was to take what the council had decided and he was to go, he was to deliver it, and then he was to explain it. That's pretty huge. He doesn't get a lot of press, but he's a pretty important central figure to the early church. He is also the same Silas that took the place of Barnabas on Paul's second missionary trip, and we'll talk about more of that in a second. And as because of that, he was also the same Silas that suffered with Paul in prison in Ephesians. For example, when they were singing praises to God while in jail, which led to the Philippian jailer coming to know Jesus Christ. Silas is someone who has experienced a greater persecution than those to whom he is writing. And he did so as one who was affirmed by the church in and through that process, who suffered well, and because he suffered well, his good suffering led to someone coming to know Jesus Christ. Why should we listen to Silas? Why should we listen to the words that have been written through this servant, Silvanus? Because he himself is one who, has, who embodies with his life exactly what is said here, of one who lived according to the dominion of God and through that stood firm in his grace. And he did so to his own peril, to his own detriment, but to the salvation of others. What do we want? What do we want as a church? What do we want as a ministry? It's easy to want an easy ministry. It's easy to want, let's just, let's just you know, say the words and let's just see lots of people come to know Jesus. That has happened in history and that is awesome when it does. But we're not promised that that is always going to be the way that Christ uses his church to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes what Christ says is, I'm going to fill you with myself and I'm going to make you so strong even though you feel weak. And I'm going to allow you to go through hard times. But that's going to be for the purpose of helping you become more like me. And it's going to be the, the, the means by which I continue to save some from every tribe, tongue, and nation around this world. We listen to what Peter is saying through Sylvanus because in Peter we find one, right, that is so easy to, to connect with when we read the Gospels, right? Peter's the first one to speak. 
the first one to be like, yeah, we can do it, and then fails miserably. Yeah, I'll get out there on the water and walk with you, and then sinks. At least it's easy for me to identify with that, because that seems to be in my experience over and over and over. And yet the one who had that experience in the Gospels that leads to him actually denying Jesus with his words the night before he is crucified is the Peter who we know eventually is crucified upside down because he has become so devoted and so committed to his Savior that even in taking up his cross, he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner and so asked to be turned upside down. We have in Peter and we have in Sylvanus two men whose lives are the reality of the words that they are telling us to listen to. Because the reality is for us when we are faced with the things that we are faced with right now, the temptation is to listen to ourselves, to go with my thoughts, to go with my feelings. And yet you and I have not been tested in the way that these men have. And we have not come through that testing like these men have. And so I implore you, as I have been imploring myself through all of this, don't rely on yourself. Look to the words of God that have come to us not only through the pen of these men, but in their lives. Listen to these men who entrusted themselves to the dominion of God. But the God of all dominion is the God of all grace. Grace is often referred to as an unmerited favor. Uh, a more precise definition would be demerited favor. Unmerited favor just means you haven't earned it. Demerited means you've earned the opposite. The grace of God that he gives to us is not a grace that comes because we earn it or because we are worthy of it it is a grace that makes us worthy in Christ. It is a grace that certainly provides us the forgiveness of sins that we need. It is also the grace that gives us the power to stand firm. It is not grace that forgives you and then you have to you know, muscle up the strength to stand firm. It is the grace that forgives and it is the grace that empowers. One person has, has put it this way. True grace is pardon so we can survive and power so we can stand. This grace is indeed the power to stand firm not to give in, not to escape, not to take up arms, but to lift your arms in doxology in order to use those arms in service to one another 
and to this world. So he tells us that the grace, it is the grace of God that leads us to stand firm. It is the grace of God that leads us to live as a community of love and of peace. You see, Peter is not alone in Babylon. There is also a church there. And the same sufferings that Peter himself is experiencing is the sufferings that the church in Rome is experiencing, which are the same sufferings that the churches uh, in Asia Minor are suffering. It is something that we experience together. It is not something that we go through alone. And so it is the grace of God that reminds us that we are called to a corporate standing together in this world. Where right now, in the midst of even Christians turning on one another because of the politics of the day, what Peter tells us to do is to turn to one another with a kiss. Now, he wasn't aware of the pandemic. By the way, you know the difference between a holy kiss and an unholy kiss. It's about three seconds. We are not to be turning on one another. We are to be turning towards one another. Is there any more gentle, more intimate expression of acceptance than a kiss? Now, that makes me really uncomfortable. We can do like a high five or something real masculine, right? But for a people, think about it. Look at the context in which he's writing. He is not writing to people who are riding high in successful lives where everything's going their way and saying, hey, when you get together, you know, turn around and, you know, greet each other with intimacy and gentleness and humility. No, he's saying it to people whose hearts are being so challenged by what's going on that there are multiple times throughout this letter that he talks about the temptation they have to fear, the temptation that they have towards fighting, the temptation of being put into a corner and going into fight or flight mode. Instead, he says, kiss. There is only one thing that will empower us to do that, and that is the grace of God. And beloved, it is a grace that we don't have to get. It's a grace we already have that is simply there for us to exercise. The God of all dominion is the God of all grace, and he has given this to us to stand firm and to live with one another as a community of love and of peace. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Back in chapter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Love of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love your neighbor. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 217. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What does that look like here in these last words of 1 Peter? Well, notice that Peter doesn't just say that he's writing from Babylon. He doesn't just say that he's writing through Silas. He's not, he doesn't just say that the church, the fellow believers in Babylon are with them. Notice how he ends. He also is writing and extending greetings on behalf of Mark. This is the John Mark who had deserted the church in, in Acts. It was the John Mark that led to the fight between Paul and Barnabas when it came to that second missionary journey. It was Mark's desertion that led Paul to say to Barnabas, we can't have him on this mission trip. What if he deserts again? And as a result of that, by the way, do you know who took Mark's place with Paul? Or Barnabas's place with Paul? Silas. Here, these two guys, who would have been so easy for Mark to be like, you took my spot. They are ministering together. And John Mark, who was known as a deserter of the church, is now being referred to as Peter's son. What has happened here, beloved, is that Mark repented. The grace of God worked in his life through the church and it led him to repent and the church embodied the grace of God by receiving him back, receiving him even as a son. This is what the world needs to see from the church. People who have failed and yet the grace of God having brought them back together. People having hurt one another and yet the grace of God empowering them to forgive one another and to receive one another and to greet one another with a kiss. John Mark was a deserter, but John Mark became restored. And he didn't become restored merely as an individual. He became restored within the community of faith, the community of grace, the community of love. That's what it means to embrace the gospel and to embody that gospel so that it's not just words, but it is a reality that is lived out within a people. The God of dominion is the God of all grace. Grace for forgiveness, great grace for hope within hostility, grace for devotion and doxology. And so Peter ends this movement in the same way that he began 
and that is with benediction, a good word that he speaks to you on behalf of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Peace to all who are in Christ. And it is a peace, beloved, that you have already received in Christ, as Christ himself has said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need this word. I can confess that it's not necessarily the word that I would like to have. And yet I am so happy, Lord, that it is the word that you give me because you know I need it. Fill my heart, Lord, and fill my mind and my will with a doxology that becomes so enraptured with who you are and what you have done for me in Christ that I would willingly take up my cross to follow him. That I would put to death those things that hinder your work within me and your work through me and that I would willingly entrust myself to you as you have already revealed your dominion through the death and through the resurrection and through the exaltation of your Son, and as you have been expressing your dominion throughout the ages in calling sinners out of darkness and leading sinners to live together in peace. Lord, help us to focus on your glory and to focus on the peace that you have given us in Christ. Lead us not to listen to the things that are there only to disturb and to try to thwart. And instead, let us hear your voice and listen to it above all others as we together indeed long to love you and to love our neighbor and to be used by you within this world even a hostile world. Lord, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.